please turn in your New Testaments to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. After Easter, we're going to go back to 1 Thessalonians. That next passage is about the light of Christ and spiritual warfare and the power of Jesus. I just felt like right after the resurrection, that would be a great place for us to go. So come back for a uh, post-Easter sermon on, on spiritual warfare and the power of the resurrection. But this morning, preparing for Easter. Yes, it is It is Holy Week starting uh, next Sunday again. Believe it or not, we're not going to get caught by surprise uh, this year. Preparing for Easter, John 12, verses 1 through 11. And this is the very Word of God, His inerrant and infallible Word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Lord, would you open our hearts to the beauty of your love and the fragrance of what it can mean in our lives and in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by asking a question that I want you to think about. I'll ask the question again at the end of the message. The question is, when was the last time you were so caught up in devotion to someone or something that your devotion just kind of took you over the top and you just did something lavish for that person or for that cause. That's what's going on in this passage. This passage is so over the top. It's it's hard to say. It's hard to describe how over the top this is. You'll get that in a minute. Uh, Mary is just kind of caught up in her love for Jesus, and she expresses this in a way that is really amazing. And this happens at a dinner party. But it's also a picture six days before the Passover, one day before Palm Sunday, of the lavish love that, that Jesus would pour out for us just six days later on the cross on Good Friday. 
So what do we know about this dinner party? Well, we, we read in, uh, there's three accounts that describe the scene, Matthew, Mark, and John. There's a similar account in Luke that is not exactly this scene. But we find out that this dinner party is taking place in a, in a little village where the triumphal entry starts, a little village just outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. We find out in the other two Gospels that the location of this dinner is in the home of one Simon the leper. And we assume that Jesus has healed Simon. Lepers weren't allowed to be with other people uh, unless they were healed. So this is is a great occasion. But we also learn that one of the the people there is, is a guy named Lazarus. Lazarus was one of the leading citizens of this little village of Bethany and... Not too long before Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. He had been dead in the tomb four days, tomb shut. Remember when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And by the power of Jesus speaking life to a corpse, Lazarus was raised from the dead. There are lots of people that think this this dinner party... Uh, was certainly for Jesus, but maybe as a way of thanking Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead. We, we don't know that. That could have been uh, the case. I, I, we know this, that uh, it is a traditional Middle Eastern dinner of honor. And in my studies, I learned uh, yet again, I learned even more so that, um, you know, when, and particularly in these little villages, when you had a dinner of honor for an honored guest, and that would be Jesus, one of the people that would be present would, would be some of the leading citizens. And Lazarus is there at least because he is a leading citizen. And his daughter or his sisters are there as well. So it's a dinner. It's in honor of Jesus. Lazarus is there. And then the next thing we learn, we're not surprised, Martha is serving. Of course Martha is serving. But I want you to know this, this text is in not any way saying that Martha's service is less valuable than anything else anybody else brings to, to the table, so to speak. No, really, this is kind of in praise of Martha. We're going to find Mary giving all she has to Jesus. I mean, uh, Mary, yeah. And, and what we learn is Martha also brings what she has to Jesus. Martha has this amazing heart of service, and that's what she uses. You know, I think of uh, many, several women in this church like that. I mean, if there's a dinner to be given, if there's a banquet to be had, if there's a special thing, I call them, quote, the usual suspects. I usually come down while they're in the kitchen, and I say, yep, the usual suspects are here. And uh, it, it is amazing just to see the, these incredible hearts that just kind of pour out in, in service to the Lord. Martha is serving. So it's a dinner in honor of Jesus. And Martha is serving. Lazarus is there at the home of Simon the leper. But none of that is why we remember this dinner. Now the reason we remember this dinner is because of what happened after the meal was served. Mary, Martha's sister, also the sister of Lazarus, disappeared from the room. Uh, She has gone down the pathway to her house to get something. She reappears into the the area where the the, the banquet, the dinner party is uh, being held. Maybe I should say uh, dinner party is being held. 
she's probably unnoticed. You know, these, these tables, they're not tables with long legs that you put your, your legs under and sit in a chair. These are tables that are just off the floor, and you, you kind of lie down on your side, and your legs are, are, are out, and it's just the men around the table, and Martha is serving, and, and so the focus is just on these dignitaries uh, and Jesus around this table. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Martha, uh, Mary being unnoticed is about to end in a hurry. In fact, everybody would just be riveted on what Mary does at the dinner party. It was over the top. It was shocking. And it was a demonstration of a love for Jesus that still touches our hearts to this day. I'd like to look at this lavish love of of Mary through three aspects. First is this kind of love is lavish. Secondly, this kind of love is impractical. Impractical. And thirdly, Jesus calls this kind of love beautiful. This kind of love we see is lavish. Verse 3, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, we might read this in our cultural context and say, oh, how dear she is. Look how sweet she is. Look how dedicated she is. That's not what they thought when they saw this. They thought, what? What is she thinking? What is she doing? Mark's version says that this this spikenard, this ointment, this perfume was in an alabaster container, a very expensive container. And and what Mary did was she reemerged into the room with something very valuable. And you know, you'd normally get a little dab out and, and, and it would perfume the room. No, she broke it. And within seconds, all of it was on Jesus. I mean, this is like, what? All of it is on Jesus? All of it. The whole pint or pound, depending on the, uh, the translation. Uh, this, this material came from India. It was wildly expensive. The whole box? Yes. Mary gives the best thing that she has in this love for Christ, and she gives all of it to him. It's probably a family heirloom. This is, this is so expensive. I'll get to the value of it in a moment. This is so expensive that it was handed down more than likely from generation to generation. Just a part of this could have been used to, to make the dowry or the bride price that the father of a bride would pay the father of the groom to be able to, to marry you know, one of those fine gentlemen of, of the village of Bethany. And, uh, and now what we see is it's broken, it's gone. All of it poured out on Jesus' feet. The other Gospels say on his head as well. This was beyond lavish for Mary. Joanna Weaver in her book, and my wife pointed me to this book this week, Being a Mary in a Martha World. She says, this is the kind of love that disregards everything else so it can focus on the one thing alone, the object of that love. 
This kind of this is the kind of love that sacrifices everything, only wishing it had more to give. I love that sentence. Nothing is too precious for this kind of love. Nothing is too exorbitant. When Mary anointed Jesus at the banquet given in his honor, she gave her very best. In fact, this author says she laid down her very future when she poured the perfume on his feet. That alabaster jar, broken in order to be widely opened, may very well have held every hope and dream she ever had and was a key to what her life could be broken. All out anointing. But what she does is lavish in another way. And this is just as shocking as the whole box or the whole container. It is his feet, we read in John's Gospel, that she anoints, that she pours it on. Now in that time, dealing with feet was the lowest of the low would would deal with feet. Uh, One scholar puts it this way, in that dusty, nasty, hot climate, dealing with people's feet was such a lowly and disgusting task that in most cities it was illegal even to make your slaves do that. It was too demeaning even to ask a slave to do such things. In the world of dust, grime, and sandals, And smell and I I won't even go into it. You know, I could get kind of gross here, but I'm not. This is amazing that she comes back into the room and she breaks this alabaster jar, pours out this this ointment and she anoints his feet. I mean, this is shocking. She doesn't care. She doesn't care. She's, you understand, she's Lazarus's sister. She's one of the leading young ladies in Bethany. Like, she's a debutante. Get it? And she has broken it all, and she's down on her knees, dealing directly with his feet. Just as, four or five days later, Jesus will wash the feet of his disciples. There's a lot of parallel going on here. So it's shocking. It's lavish what she does and breaks the whole thing. It's, it's kind of amazing and lavish how she deals with his feet. But it gets more shocking than that. Y'all ready for the, like the, the punctuation, like the exclamation mark on this? Mary wipes his feet. Do you see it? With her hair. Now you could be thinking, how sweet. How personal, how tender, how loving. But the people in that room are thinking, what? How inappropriate is that? Women did not let their hair down back then. You didn't let your, you, you let your hair down with your husband. You let your hair down only in your own private residence when nobody was there with your family. I mean, we still have these idioms and these little ways of speaking. Let your hair down. I mean, this is why we talk like that. It was hideously inappropriate for this single woman to go and bend over the feet, anoint the feet of Jesus, and then let her hair down. 
in front of him. To this day, we still associate the letting down of hair with intimacy. And I assure you, in parts of the Middle East, it really is enforced that you do not let your hair down. Except with those that you have an intimate love and relationship with. Mary let her hair down for Jesus and he, she gets so close to Jesus to wipe the perfume with her own hair. That's how much she loved him. That's how much she wanted to show it. In her love, she does not care what other people think. She just loves so lavishly. You see why their attention is suddenly riveted on Mary? The whole point, pint of spikenard from India. And the point of this pint of nard, she is saying, I love you so much that I want you to have all I have. And then the feet and the wiping with hair, she is saying to Jesus and to everybody in the room, I love you so much that I not only want to give you all I have, I want to give you all I am. I want to give myself to you. I want to personally show intimate love and sacrifice and, and lavish love to you. I mean, you, you look at this in the ancient Middle Eastern context and you say, wow, her love doesn't have any bounds. It is so lavish, literally flowing. The spectacle of this kind of love. So that's the first thing. This kind of love that we see is lavish. But secondly, this kind of love is impractical. In fact, it's very impractical. In John's recounting the story, uh, it is Judas who objects. Judas Iscariot who would betray Jesus. In the other two Gospels, it's all of the disciples who are upset with Mary, breaking the whole thing, wiping his feet with her hair. It's all of them. So before you get on Judas, you need to understand this is very impractical, and everybody saw it, and everybody pointed it out, especially Judas. Verse 4 of our text, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why? Why would you do this? There was a better use, a better practical use, you see. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, we learn in verse 6, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief having charge of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was in the money bag. Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Other translation, other gospels say she's preparing me for my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Look, make no mistake about it. This was a colossal waste of money. Did you notice in the text that it was worth a year's wages? Okay, I looked up the average year's wages in Madison and Ridgeland, Mississippi. Okay, this is the average. Let me tell you how expensive this box of stuff was. This box, in today's terms, right here where we live, was worth $45,000. Now you get it? 
She brought in $45,000 and was done with it in 30 seconds. We're not exactly sure that Lazarus and Martha didn't have a share in this. <laughs> How impractical is it? I mean, it's like, come on, you could have taken half a cup, and we could have had a lot of perfume. That would have been like over the top. But now you had to break the whole thing. You had to like destroy the alabaster jar. You had to, you had to put an entire pint on Jesus' head and his feet. 45 G's of perfume on Jesus right there, and it's gone, and you can't put it back in. For one, maybe they're thinking, you could have used that cash yourself. But then, Judas says, do you know how many meals on wheels for poor people we could have paid for with $45,000? How foolish are you? How impractical is this, is this act of love? Let me tell you, the fact that it is wildly impractical is a part of what makes it so powerful. A part of what makes it so beautiful. Mary is so caught up in her devotion and love to Jesus that she just goes over the top. In this impractical way, I, I love, I love what Alexander McLaren says. I kind of like these old theologians, you know, they have this little poetic way of saying things. He says, true love is profuse. I mean, think about it. When you first started dating somebody, when you first got married, oh, you just get carried away and do something. Think about when a child came into the world and, oh, precious, has the best of everything. You know, true love is profuse. He says, it, true love, it knows no better use for its best than to lavish it all on its beloved and can have no higher joy than doing that. It does not calculate whether it's worth doing or not. It delights in the very absence of practical results. He goes on to say, Judas' criticism is still with us today. You don't need to give that much to Jesus. But real love, he says, is hopelessly impractical. Real love is hopelessly impractical. Have you ever just gotten out of control with your love for Jesus? (laughs) That you just kind of well up and and just want to, over the top, give something because you love that's very impractical, very valuable to you, very lavish. And we're just kind of out of a few other stories heading to Palm Sunday. This is like that little wee little man named Zacchaeus. You know, Jesus, come down Zacchaeus from going to your house today. Zacchaeus comes to know Jesus. Do you remember Zacchaeus had a party and all the tax collectors were there and everybody else saying, I can't believe Jesus has gone to eat with the tax collectors and the sinners. And Zacchaeus stands up, remember, and with great joy he says, you know what? I just want to give all of this to the poor. And anybody that I've cheated, I want to give four times back 
one-fifth times back was the requirement, four times back. I mean, Zacchaeus is so filled with joy and love for Jesus at that dinner party, he's just giving it all away. Nobody can believe it. It's like Scrooge, you know, after the last ghost, and he wakes up, oh, let's buy a turkey. Here's some money, you know. This is like Zacchaeus. And then we remember Peter, James, and John when, when Jesus called them. Remember, there was this great catch of fish, so much that it was swamping the boat. And, and Peter said, come, on, come over here to, to James and John. And they went over, and the two boats couldn't even hold it. And so they, they, he, he looks at Jesus, and he says, Go, you need to leave me because I am a sinful man. And Jesus said, fear not, Simon. From, from now on, you're going to catch men. And, and right there, Jesus, uh, Peter gets it about Jesus. And we know there is this, this like lavish, impractical, outrageous response to Jesus because it says they got in their boat, they, their boats got to the dry land and they left everything and followed Jesus. I'm talking about the biggest pile of fish that had ever been caught by them with a multiplier effect. Fish equals cash. If you're a fisherman, fish equals, they just left the cash on the beach. It was wildly irresponsible, (laughs) wildly impractical. So challenging. I I think about the, the child. I'll tell you a story about something happened in this church in just a moment. But, you know, our, our kids, some of them come to know the Lord at a very early age, and, and they've just got that, that, that really sweet heart for Jesus and a really sweet and tender love for Jesus. And I'm thinking about the kid right now. You know, he, he's been hearing about what it is to love Jesus. He's getting interested in the offering. Then it's a missions th- festival. And the next thing you know, he's brought everything he has. And he just shoved it on the other side of the table for Jesus. And we want to say, you don't have to give everything. You know, grow up. Grow up. You don't give everything. Oh, my, when did we lose this? I remember a young man, a little boy, when we were in the other sanctuary, he was sitting on the second row right there where Dan is sitting. And when it came time for the offering, I just couldn't because I was not sitting far from him, he's kept pulling out bills. Y'all, when I say he kept pulling out bills, I mean the plate was on his lap, and he pulled out bills for like three minutes. The plate got about that high. And you literally had to put your hand over the plate to pass it. Because it would, all the bills, like the $5 bills, the $10 bills, and the $1 bills would all fall out. I mean, that was so cute. And his mother told me after the service, it was everything he had. How beautiful is that? Do you see it? That's what Mary's doing. It's so irresponsible in a way. It's, it's hopelessly impractical. Tim Keller states, a real follower of Christ is like an accountant who has developed an entirely new set of software for doing his accounting. 
It says in Matthew 13, I'm quoting him, it says in Matthew 13 that this new set of accounting principles is like this. It says a follower of Christ is like someone when he finds a pearl of great price is willing to sell everything he has in order to have that pearl because he knows that pearl is worth more. Hundreds, thousands of times more than all he owns. He knows that when he, when he gets that pearl, he'll have something far more. So with joy, he gives everything that he has. Think about this. Following Christ costs lots of things, he says. But a follower is someone who has sp- spiritual accounting procedures. So you always give up what you have with joy. There is a new attitude toward everything once we are in Christ. Jesus Christ is saying here, don't follow me until you have an understanding of my death. So there is nothing in your life that you would not be willing to give up for me. Until you get that, you don't understand. This kind of love is lavish. This kind of love is wildly impractical. But Jesus calls this kind of love beautiful. Christ says, she got it. She understood. When Judas and the other disciples in the other two uh, Gospels, when Judas raises the issue of impracticality, Jesus rebukes Judas, whom we know just wanted to put his hand on some of the cash. Again, one of the old scholars, I love this, Judas stretches out his hands like talons to take the money. I love that. I just had to throw it in there. Judas calls her love impractical. Jesus calls it beautiful. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Other gospels... She is preparing me for my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus shows us that her lavish love was a sign of an even more lavish love. She is, quote, preparing him for his burial. There's lots of thinking back and forth whether she kind of intuited the death of Jesus or not. I don't think she did. I don't think she knows it, but the point is is that he knows it. He knows it. And everyone at that time, and we do read this in the Gospels, everyone is wondering, is Jesus, does he have the temerity to show his face in Jerusalem? Don't go to Jerusalem, Jesus. They plotted to kill you. Don't go to Jerusalem, Jesus. They're lying in wait for you. Everyone is wondering, will Jesus show up in Jerusalem? And here he is, a few miles away from Jerusalem on the launching pad. And tomorrow morning, he will get up. He will have breakfast. He will be with some folks. And then he will get on a donkey and he will ride into Jerusalem. That's next week. And by Friday, he will be crucified. And the most agonizing form of execution and slow, painful death known to man at that time. She's preparing me. This is, she, this is, no, leave her alone. 
She's preparing me for my burial. This, this is amazing love. He's staring down the gun barrel of the cross. He's about to pour his life out. You see kind of a parallel there? He's about to pour his life out like the perfume was poured out for the ugly, nasty grime and grit of your sin and my sin that just won't go away before a holy God unless Jesus' blood is poured out and washes it away. And Jesus, the perfect Lamb, the Messiah, the second person of God, fully human, came for us, His blood alone. That's why it's called grace. Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. All of Him poured out for us. How impractical is that? Considering it's me. Considering it, it, is, it is you, the, the second person of God pouring his life out. The spectacle of it. The spectacle of it. The poor you will always have with me says, you should attend to that. Some people say, see, Jesus doesn't care about the poor. Stop it, stop it, stop it. That's not what he's saying. The poor you always have, and you should attend to the poor. Jesus has gone over this many times in his ministry. But I will be killed within a week. I'll be buried within a week. You always can deal with the poor, but you won't always have me. I'll be gone in a week. And she's preparing for my burial. So let's ask the question and wrap this up. What do you and I do with this? What this is asking is not if you love Jesus. It's how you love Jesus. I mean, it kind of is asking if you love Jesus. But but really it's kind of dealing with how you love Jesus. Now, allow me just to kind of range into our lives for a moment. And I'm going to range, and and it could be wider than this. But look, we already know that we go all out for things. Things we really love. Things we have real passion for. We, We already know we're over the top. For our sports and our hobbies, we buy gear galore. I'm talking about we spend real money. And we spend it for the backing of our college sports and for our kids' sports and for our our other hunting and fishing and every kind of sports. This is just one aspect, folks. And we really do go lavish on what we love. We go impractical on what we love. You know, the husband comes home and says, Honey, I bought a boat. And she says, What? You asked me not to buy a dress and you bought a boat? I I mean, there's several examples. And we spend it on ourselves. And we lavish what we want. We already do this text. You get that? The question is, will we love Christ and His kingdom like this? And I say it to myself too. I have loves and passions just like you. Holy Week, the week that Jesus poured it all out for us, is a good time to consider what kind of love we have for Him and His kingdom, or what kind of love we would like to have for Him. 
This passage is a wonderful picture of, of functionally what this looks like. It, it's lavish. It's, it's what we have. It's the broken alabaster jar, $45,000 in 30 seconds. It's lavish. It's, it's dr- wiping his feet with her hair. It's all that I am. It's intimate. It, it, it's a personal response. You know, I remember that, that Christmas hymn in the bleak midwinter. And children who are here, you say, I don't have $45,000. You probably remember these words. What can I give him, the, the infant Christ? What can I give him, poor as I am? If I, if I were a shepherd, I would bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I will give him my heart. And there's something so beautiful in this that you and I, as, as busy consumers, need to just stop and see. As one of the old scholars, Alexander McLaren, again, says, you know, Mary herself, after giving so much and wiping this with her hair, She then had the most beautiful fragrance in her hair that she took all around the house. Just so, he says, when we love like that, we become beautiful and fragrant of Christ in the world. And people can smell real love everywhere we go. I love that. Okay, let me ask the question again. When was the last time you just went over the top with lavish, impractical, and beautiful love? This Easter, ask God to give, cause your love for Jesus and His kingdom to go over the top. Ask God to show you how to pour out something for Him. How, how to give yourself to Him anew and be able to bless others through showing that love to Him. Preparing for Easter. Let's pray. Lord, just see us. We're your children, and um, we're all over the highway in a fallen world, and we have many loves, and some of our loves are, are misplaced. Others are not. Lord, would you, would you keep us from having a callus over our heart to deflect this very passage and your spirits working in our lives? Lord, would you soften my heart, the hearts of people in this sanctuary, the hearts of people listening on the internet and watching right now as well. And, oh Lord, would you give us love, that other-centered thing? Would you show us what we could give? Would you show us how we could give? Would you show us how to give our very selves to you? And Lord, as we get on that journey next Sunday with Palm Sunday, as Jesus comes in amidst the hosannas all the way through Easter, Lord, would you take us on a journey of wonder, of worship, and response? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.